This podcast comes to you from the Plant Biosecurity Research Initiative. For more information on PBRI, visit www.pbri.com.au. G'day, this is Chris Brown. Fall armyworm was first detected in Australia early in 2020, and naturally there was concern about what this exotic pest could mean to Australian farming. Over coming weeks, your industry will be presenting a number of podcasts, both with international experts as well as local scientists, growers and advisors to try to come to grips with what to expect from fall armyworm as it continues its spread in Australia. Now today I'm speaking to David Kearns, the Associate Head of the Department of Entomology at the Texas Agriculture and Life Sciences University, situated in the city of College Station in East Central Texas. David, welcome. Firstly, can I get you to introduce yourself to our Australian audience, maybe a bit about your background and your experience with Fall Army Worm? Well, I'm a, a professor and a, the uh, state IPM coordinator for the state of Texas and a professor here at Texas A&M University. And I have an extension appointment. I do a, a, a lot of outreach and research that's very applied through the uh, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service. I've worked with fall armyworm for, well, for many years. I, I've been a lot of different places. Spent time in Arizona, where working primarily in, in vegetables and, and citrus. And, we, you know, we had some fall armyworm incidences there. They weren't extremely severe, but we would occasionally pick them up. And then uh, spent time in uh, West Texas, and fall armyworm is pretty common out there. And then in Louisiana, and again, it's fall armyworm is very common pest in uh, the Mid-South states of the U.S. And then most recently, I uh, hear at, at Texas A&M, and again, we, we see fall armyworm every, every year. I think the thing you want to remember about fall armyworm, it's, it's a little, it's a diverse species. And what I mean by that is there's different races or strains. Typically, the two that we deal with, we call them either the corn strain or the rice strain. They're very distinct. I mean, they can hybridize or they can cross mate, but honestly, it's it depends on which strain's the male and which one's the female if the mating's successful. So it's it's almost almost like you got subspecies, and the crops they affect and the control strategies are going to depend on on the strain of army worm you encounter. Just to be more complicated, we're going to be talking about Texas today. So we just get a, bit, a picture of, of Texas in terms of its climate and our listeners can then sort of relate it to their own climate. So what is the climate of Texas if there's one or multiple climates? Well, it's definitely multiple climates in the what we call the lower Rio Grande Valley, which is in South Texas, is subtropical. They pretty much can grow crops year round and there's a lot of vegetable production down there. But a lot of row crops as well. And as you move north through East Texas, it, it ends up being heavily wooded as you get into East Texas. And then the further you go west, you just get a drier and drier climate. You get up into the Panhandle area of Texas or the South Plains or the High Plains areas, and it's a semi-arid environment. So it's predominantly grassland. There's a lot of row crop agriculture in that area. And then if you get into far west Texas, 
then you get into a very dry climate. It's a desert. And of course, there's there's still a lot of production out there. Of course, it's all dependent on irrigation in far west Texas. What are the crops that are grown in Texas? It's pretty diverse. I mean, on, on the row crop side, our major crops would be cotton, sorghum, corn. We have some soybeans, but it's not a large amount. But those are the predominantly the big three, I would say. You can get some vegetable production down in the valley. You can get potatoes and a few other things, you know, throughout different areas of the state. But by and large, cotton is king in Texas as far as the crops go, followed by sorghum and corn. Does fall armyworm have an effect on cotton in Texas? Yeah, yeah, and it kind of it goes back to this the, what I mentioned on these strains. So what we call the corn strain, it'll feed in corn, it'll feed as a world feeder. And then on, on the ears, it'll actually directly impact the ears as well, a lot, lot like, a, like a corn earworm. But in cotton, they'll go to the fruit. The eggs are typically laid as egg masses on the leaves, but after they hatch, they'll disperse to the blooms and to the fruit, and they, they will eat the fruit. That same strain, the corn strain, is the one that we have that also feeds in uh, the sorghum heads as a part of the headworm complex. Does the rice strain also affect cotton? No, no, and that's what's curious. So the, the grass strain, what it really prefers to feed on are, are annual grasses. You know, of course, feed on some rice, that's where it gets its name, but our biggest impact that we see with the rice strain is it's, it's a pasture pest. Of course, in Texas, we're a big cattle producing state, so we have a lot of hay pasture and improved pasture and, and just rangeland. But by and large, you know, they're, they're a major pest of Bermuda grass. Just Bermuda grass or uh, other uh, varieties of pasture? They'll go to other grasses as well. I mean, homeowners will, will have problems with them. So, and even, you know, athletic fields, I mean, they'll, they'll have infestations of the, the grass strand that they'll have to deal with. And it's kind of interesting. So, like for soybeans, typically our problem in soybean comes from the grass strain, which which doesn't make a lot of sense. But what happens is you'll have these soybean fields that have a lot of annual grasses as weeds growing in them. And you'll get these grass strain fall armyworm feeding on those annual grasses in the soybean field. And when the grower kills the grass with the herbicide, well, then they move over to the soybeans and then they begin defoliating the soybeans. So uh, you can have some inadvertent movement of, of the grass strain off of an annual grass, but typically they definitely prefer to feed on, on annual grasses. And is it common to have both strains of fall armyworm uh, together in a, well, a district or even a paddock? Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, you can get them both. There's no doubt about it. And the corn strain, it's kind of less predictable. We see it every year. In some, some years, they can be quite severe. And then other years, not so severe. That grass strain, it seems like that it'll come on in August for us and September, and it's associated with wet conditions, which predominate in July. So if we have a really wet July, then you can, you can bet that we'll have a big outbreak of, of grass strain. What about the damage, the level of damage that it's causing to these crops? It really depends a lot on the crop. I mean, in, for instance, in sorghum in the headworm complex, we simply just include it when we're looking at thresholds. We count it with with our other head head feeders, which would be our midra for you guys. 
So the damage is going to be the same, and the threshold with fall armyworm and sorghum is going to be the same for us. And cotton, it's a little weird because, you know, BT cotton's done a lot to reduce the incidence of fall armyworms. For whatever reason, though, the BT cottons that produce the Cry-1AC and the Cry-2 toxin, stuff like Bogard-2 or Twinlink for us, those tend to be a little bit more susceptible to fall armyworm. And when we see them impact that crop, usually what we see is if you get a large egg lay in the cotton, the larvae that move into the blooms, they'll survive. And they'll just they'll feed in those blooms, and then they'll take that little bowl that's developing it. I wouldn't say it's a common problem, but it seems like every couple of years there's issues with it in some places. You know, it's it's just not super common. The VIP technology has done very well on reducing uh, the fall armyworm numbers, but the older technologies with the Cry two toxins just for whatever reason, seem to be a little bit susceptible to it. How about corn and sorghum when it comes to damage? Now, I suppose I'm talking here like an untreated crop. Is it a wipeout situation? What's the level of damage that they can do? In sorghum, it's not it's not a wipeout situation, but it's an economic situation. There's no doubt about it. You can get unacceptable yield loss from them. You know, our threshold, for instance, in, in sorghum is dependent on the price of sorghum. It, you know, is typically one or two larvae per head. And again, we count our midra, you know, we count that in with them to determine that threshold. But yet we we definitely treat for them. They're usually not as common as our helicoverpa, but there are situations when they definitely add to the problem. And your control of that pest may be a little different when you have a mix. Say if you've got a mix of helicoverpa and fall armyworm on a sorghum head, your control tactics may change depending on the proportion of the population as one species or the other. Can you enlarge on that? Because that is a concern here in Australia, particularly with resistance to the controls for helicoverpa. How is it different? How is the control different? And how do you manage those resistance issues? It does kind of go back to strain a little bit. For instance, the grass strain of falling worms, they're highly susceptible to pyrethroid. The corn strain is not. And so if, if you have fall armyworm in your mix, your pyrethroids are probably just not going to be as effective on that population. The good thing about sorghum is, I mean, with, with the head being so exposed, if you catch those larvae very soon, if you're treating a first or second instar fall armyworm, you can still kill them with the pyrethroid. But as soon as they hit third or fourth, you know, you can forget it. I mean, it, it's not going to be very effective at all. Whereas with the helicoverpa, and we have some pyrethroid resistance issues with that pest, but they do tend to be a little bit more susceptible to the pyrethroids than the fall armyworm. And also, and I, I know y'all use a lot of MPV for your helicoverpa control in Australia. So if you have a lot of fall armyworm in your mix, then, you know, of course, that's very specific to helicoverpa, then it's going to miss, it's going to miss all those headworms. And if you back up some in, in, in the development of the crop, you know, you can get a lot of fall armyworms that whirl feed. You can get some yield reduction off of severe infestations of whirl feeding fall armyworms, 
but they're very, very difficult to control when they're world feeding. They're just, to get the product to them is hard to do. Even with your best products like your diamides. Well, we've done tests with diamides, which we've seen at very high rates, no more than 80% control. And it's cost prohibitive for the amount of control you get. So we typically don't recommend treating world feeders. And if you try to use something a little bit cheaper, let's say you try to, you know, I've had people try to use a, a pyrethroid to control world feeding fall armyworms. And it, of course, it just doesn't work and it ends up making the situation worse because you can't get a lot of parasitism of those world feeding fall armyworms. And all that pyrethroid does is, is knock out your beneficials. So it can be a detrimental. I have read doing some research about the third instar as I suppose the limit of control with pyrethroids. What about beyond that? There are obviously chemistries, you've just been talking about them, that can control the caterpillar at a later stage. Oh yeah, chloranthoprilinol. We call it Prevathon here. I don't, I don't even know if y'all have it. I don't know what products y'all have access to, but... I'm sure people will be checking that right now. It's a diamide insecticide, and it's, it is highly effective. And the good thing in sorghum is you can go with a pretty low rate, just because, again, that, that sorghum head's so exposed that you can clean them up. You can't, like I said, using that same product, you can get some control out of world feeders. Again, it's not it's just not as good as it could be, but you can get some. Probably the other product that we've seen have, that has pretty good fall armyworm control is Nova Luron. And I don't know if you have that one either. We call it Diamond here in the U.S. It's another very good fall armyworm material. Let's just move on to a couple of the other crops that you've mentioned. Corn was one. Is it is it a big problem in corn in Texas? Yeah, it can be. And again, it's it's similar to sorghum that you can get them feeding in the worlds, which we usually don't treat for. And then on the ears, well, we don't treat for them then either <laughs> because because your window of control is so narrow to pick them up. So mostly what you're relying on is VT technology to try to control those. But we don't have the VT corn in Australia. Oh, that's not good. Yeah, so it's going to be a little bit different. So it, again, the world feeding could be an issue. That might be something that y'all have to rely on. Again, you'd have to rely on the, on the diamide insecticide to really try to pick those up. And then again, your control wouldn't be 100%. You know, like I said, it may be, you know, 80, 80 at best. But when they get into the ears, there's really not a lot you can do. And they feed differently. So where your helicoverpa tend to be tip feeders, and a lot of times they'll, they'll stay up in that tip, and you really won't have a lot of incidents of economic damage because they feed in that silk channel and on those immature non-harvestable kernels you know so they don't pick up a lot of the the harvestable kernels whereas that fall armyworm a lot of times they'll just go straight through and go deeper into the ear and feed on a large portion of the harvestable part of the ear and so that, that can be a big issue. Outside of having a very strict and regimented spray program, I don't see a lot of benefit from trying to treat from them. It's just probably not cost effective. 
these products that work so well, like the diamides, you know, they are translaminar and they will move in the plant, particularly in the leaf. And even if you get it on the stem, it can move up through the plant, but they don't move in the silk. So every time that silk grows, it's going to expose something that's not treated. And so it's almost like your timing would have to be exact when that worm is starting to enter that ear to pick it up. And so it takes a lot of really close scouting and, and monitoring to get a good effective shot of an insecticide for fall armworm and corn. Mm. How do your ranchers manage their pastures when fall armyworms about? So again, that, so we go back, that's the rye strain. It, it's a lot easier pest to control than the corn strain. It's just a lot more susceptible to our insecticides. Pyrethroids work really good on them and they're fairly cheap. So we'll see a lot of pyrethroids used. The, the problem with pyrethroids is you're not going to get a lot of residual out of them. So if you're in a situation where you're just getting in, you know, flight after flight after flight into your pasture, then it would require multiple applications. That's where we run into problems because I don't know very many cattlemen that like to spray. So we, we can look at other products. And again, I, you know, these diamides, the chloranthoprilino is dynamite on them. And with that product, depending on the rate you use, you can get about three weeks control out of it, and which is just absolutely phenomenal. So you can pick up anything that keeps hatching out in that pasture or any kind of continual flights. An alternative to that is to use a pyrethroid mix with uh, diflubingeron. It's a very old insecticide. It's, a, it's an IGR. And so that, that product will not kill any of the larger larvae. So if you've got a pasture and you have a bunch of larger worms out there, you're not going to pick any of those up. But it'll pick up very small larvae. And then if you have any eggs hatch behind that pyrethroid application that's going to wear off in four or five days, then that product will pick them up most of the time. And it's very cheap. So that's very popular for the pasture guys as well. There are some other products like methoxyphenicide. And again, I don't know what y'all have access to. That's another IGR. It's got longer residual than, say, a uh, pyrethroid under dry conditions. Under wet conditions, it's not very rain fast. But it does. It has a lot of utility as well. When you say ranchers don't like to spray, I can imagine our pastoralists don't like to spray too much either. So when a fall armyworm hits a paddock, does it occupy hundreds of acres or just a couple of acres? How does it behave? So with that rice strain, when when it hits, it's widespread. It it literally thousands, if not millions of acres at once. Oh, really? Yeah. I'll give you an instance. In, In 2018, we had a huge issue with them in East Texas well, and Central and East Texas. And they sprayed so much pasture that they completely used all the pyrethroids in the state of Texas. Wow. And the alternative was no pasture. Yeah, the alternative is no pasture. What about vegetables? Now, I think you mentioned some vegetables. You've had experience with some vegetables in other states. How significant is it a problem in vegetables? It doesn't seem to be as severe, although you can get them. And my experience with them is when I was in Arizona, so it's, it's somewhat limited. And we would get them in head lettuce. And the bad thing about that pest, when you get them in head lettuce, they would bore straight into the head. And so, again, you're looking at 
of course, that's going to completely lose that head. And, you know, if you get enough of that, they're going to kick the whole crop out. They'll bore straight into it. And so timing, again, timing of application in that kind of situation is critical. And of course, their threshold in vegetables is zero. So, you know, if they pick up any fall armyworm, I mean, it's an automatic application to control that pest. You mentioned beneficial insects. How big a role do they play in the control of fall armyworm in Texas? I mean, they can be fairly significant. I, I would say, for instance, in, in sorghum, and I would say this for our helicoverpa too, you know, there is a lot of times when we can have a huge egg lay in the sorghum and you may have a 5X threshold or even more. It may be 10X threshold of larvae on that head and you can come back in a week and there's nothing there. You can attribute that a lot of that to beneficials. You can also, you know, attribute it just to environmental conditions. So they play a significant role. And not only in crop, and then probably their most significant role is probably out of crop in the natural habitat and helping suppress populations. And there's a whole host of them. You know, out, you know, a lot of predators will feed on them. But again, a whole host of different kinds of parasitoids that will prey on them. Mm-hmm. And not to mention viral diseases, naturally occurring ones that can come in. And especially when you get these situations with these very large populations of larvae, like we see a lot of times, with, particularly with that grass strain just millions of larvae, if the environmental conditions are right, it's not uncommon to see a big epizootic come in and just take them out. The problem we run into in those kind of situations is that I would say in most cases, you've already suffered some injury to that crop, economic injury, by the time that epizootic is actually kicking in. It can remove the population, but chances are you probably should have sprayed them anyway. Yeah, it's always the problem, isn't it? The catch-up. Look, David, it's been fantastic to talk to you, and I'm sure the growers and their advisors listening to this will have gained so much knowledge out of it. But can we finish off just asking you for, from your long experience dealing with fall armyworm, what advice would you give the Australian industry at at the beginning of our journey? The main thing is be diligent. Scouting, you can't replace scouting. Boots in the field, you can't substitute that. If you got boots walking your fields and eyes looking, then you're going to pick those situations up. In most cases where you run into really disasters, it's from not catching it soon enough. I think that the tools are there in most cases to control the pest. It's just a matter of being diligent and watching for the pest and making you know, timely decisions if you need to treat. When you say scouting, are you looking for damage or are you looking for the pest or both? I would say both, and it's going to depend a lot on the crop. I mean, in you know something like sorghum, you're looking for the for the pest, and then in, in cotton, it's mostly the pest you're looking for, and a little bit a little bit of damage in pasture. It's mostly the pest, but damage can definitely be an indicator of, of what's out there. Pay attention to what your neighbors are doing, you know, and. Nine times out of ten, especially in those situations where we got these huge outbreaks, if you've got your ear out listening, somebody nearby, what I mean by nearby, it may be 80 miles away, they're going to have the situation first, then you know it's coming. You know, and so it's just a matter of paying attention to what's happening in the environment. All right. Well, look, again, thank you very much for your time, David. You've been a tremendous help to us. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. 
That was Professor David Kearns from Texas A&M. David is the Associate Head of the Department of Entomology and is the Integrated Pest Management Coordinator for Texas. This podcast was brought to you by the Plant Biosecurity Research Initiative, an initiative of the following R&D organisations. Cotton Research and Development Corporation, Forest and Wood Products Australia, Grains Research and Development Corporation, Horticulture Innovation Australia, Agrifutures Australia, Sugar Research Australia, Wine Australia and Plant Health Australia.